Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Right, so happy new year again to everybody. I appreciate all the new year's wishes that I got. Um, today was actually very slow, so this might be a quicker episode than usual. Um, but to get started here, the first story at the top of antiwar.com today music festival survivors sue Israel for negligence. So, 42 Israelis who attended the Nova Music Festival near the Gaza border that was attacked on October 7th have sued the Israeli security establishment for failing to protect the event. So this is an interesting story. This lawsuit filed a claim for $56 million against Israel's Shin Bet security agency, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Defense Ministry, the Israeli police. And the lawsuit says that the agency's negligence and the gross oversight allowed the Hamas attack on the festival to happen. So the lawsuit reads, quote, a single phone call by IDF officials to the commander responsible for the party to disperse it immediately in view of the expected danger would have saved the lives and prevented the physical and mental injuries of hundreds of partygoers, including the plaintiffs, end quote. So Haaretz has reported that top Israeli military officials held consultations the night before October 7th to discuss warnings it received about a possible Hamas attack. So Israeli officials had a heads up that something was happening, that some unusual activity was going on in Gaza. But they, the Israeli military, nobody in the Israeli military notified the Nova festival organizers. And, you know, they were very close to the Gaza border. So this all had to be, you know, the the festival had to be approved by the Israeli military and it was supposed to be under IDF protection. So the lawsuit reads, quote, on the night between October 6th and October 7th, at least two IDF assessments were held due to unusual incidents on the Gaza Strip border, one near midnight and another assessment close to 3 a.m., several hours before the Hamas attack, end quote. So the festival's production team has said that they could have evacuated the entire party even if they received a warning just one hour before the attack. And once the attackers descended upon the festival, the partygoers were told that they were on their own. So this is really, you know, kind of going over this again because I, I know I ran, we covered that Haaretz report on antiwar.com just about how they had a warning the night before and kind of how slow, how long it took for the Israeli military to respond to the to the attack on the music festival. That Haaretz report says that organizers contacted the Israeli military at 7 a.m. the morning of the attack and Israeli forces did not get to the scene until 3 p.m., so eight hours later. And once the Israeli military did show up, they started firing indiscriminately at Palestinian militants and Israeli civilians. An Israeli police investigation found that IDF helicopters that arrived at the scene fired on Hamas fighters and also hit some festival participants. Now, I don't know, you know, the proportion, how many 
Israelis they hit, how many were killed, how many were just injured. I really have no sense of kind of the proportion, but it's definitely worth pointing out. And there's other evidence that the IDF killed uh, and wounded some civilians on some Israelis on October 7th. And then in the couple days uh, of fighting that followed in Southern Israel. So thousands of people attended this festival and the lawsuit says that a total of 364 party goers were killed during the Hamas attack and 40 were taken captive into Gaza. Israeli officials have said they don't think Hamas knew about the festival and attacked it spontaneously when they came across the event on the morning of October 7th. So here's another big detail is that initially the festival was only supposed to take place on October 5th and 6th, and it got approved to be extended into Saturday, October 7th, that same week. And there was another report from Haaretz, and this I missed. I I didn't see this until uh, this lawsuit came out. This was published on December 25th, and it reveals that Gaza's division's operation officer, Lieutenant Colonel Sahar Fogel, uh, you know, in charge of operations around Gaza, he opposed the extension, arguing that it was a needless security risk. But he was told by his superiors to his superiors to approve the extension anyway. Um, and if if you go check out that report, it says he wasn't concerned about a Hamas attack, like what happened on October seventh. He was just more worried about rocket fire because, again, this was very close to the border. And I mean, there's just so much evidence. And now in this story, I don't even get into the other stuff. The fact that Israel had Hamas's attack plan for over a year. Recently, I went over that story that said Shin Bet had a source in Gaza basically telling them that an attack was going to happen right after Yom Kippur. But they said, ah, you know, they ignored it. And also uh, these IDF soldiers who were uh, who worked as what they call spotters watching surveillance were telling their commanding officers, you know, warning them about all this unusual Hamas activity, and they didn't do anything about it. They ignored it. So, you know, I think they have a pretty strong case for a lawsuit here. Um, and of course, this gets into territory of of wondering if they let this attack happen, uh, uh, you know, on October 7th, and even maybe on this uh, music festival. I won't get into too much speculation there, but it definitely makes you think about it. So let me know what you guys think about that, but, um, just, you know, so, so much evidence of this, a complete intelligence, uh, failure by Israel. So, and then of course they use this, these attacks and, and the, and the, and the killings to justify this horrific war and mass murder that they're waging in Gaza right now. All right. So the next one here, Israeli Supreme Court strikes down Bibi's judicial overhaul law. So this article is from Axios, and it says that Israel's Supreme Court on Monday narrowly struck down a controversial law that's part of Netanyahu, the Netanyahu government's judicial overhaul and limited the court's ability to review government decisions. So if you remember, before October 7th, uh, for a long time, there was a political crisis going on inside Israel over this judicial overhaul that the Netanyahu government was pushing that would basically take power away from Israel's Supreme Court and let the Knesset uh, overturn Israeli Supreme Court decisions. This one specific law that was passed 
um, limited the court's ability to review government decisions. It, it was the first step, the first law that they that they pushed forward. And there was actually a leak, I think, last week that this was going to be the court's decision. So now the question is, and this Axios report kind of goes through some potential scenarios. The question is, how is Netanyahu's government going to react? You know, they put out a statement saying that they were not happy with the decision. Um, but this judicial overhaul you know, there was huge protests across Israel for months and months over this, including, you know, people in the military. You know, the Israeli establishment was very against this uh, in a lot of sectors. So I, I kind of have a feeling with the, with the war going on, with what Netanyahu's kind of political crisis that he's facing over the intelligence failure, that he's not going to make too much of a stink about this right now. But one thing that this axial one possibility that could happen is that you have the the Israeli war cabinet which is separate from the regular government cabinet and Benny Gantz is in there and he's considered more moderate even though i mean he's really not uh he's not moderate but more moderate than Netanyahu's governing coalition which includes very extreme uh people and this is saying, oh, it's possible, depending on how Netanyahu's government reacts, that Gantz might want to leave the war cabinet. And then that would mean that the Netanyahu government is making all the decisions when it comes to what's happening in Gaza. But I can't imagine things being worse than they are. So I don't know uh, if that's even really would really change that much. But anyway, it's kind of big news um, when it comes to the internal politics inside Israel. All right, so the next one here, Israeli troops kill Palestinians seeking return to North Gaza. This article is from The Cradle. The Israeli army killed 10 Gazans who insisted on returning from the south to the north of the Gaza Strip, contrary to the army's instructions. And this is based on something reported by Israeli journalist Avishai Grinzeg of the Khan Public Broadcaster. I probably butchered his name, but he wrote on X that, quote, Anyone who crossed a certain line, the soldiers shot to kill. After 10 bodies, the Gazans understood the hint and retraced their steps, end quote. In November, Palestinians who had fled south to escape the fighting in northern Gaza used the four-day truce to try to return to their homes, but were similarly, similarly shot by Israeli forces as they attempted the trip. Israel had warned people that they will, will not be allowed to return to the north of the war-torn enclave. Um, so it sounds like more were trying to return, and according to this Israeli journalist, they were getting shot by the IDF. All right, so the next one here. Two Israeli ministers say resettle the Palestinians and build settlements. So two extremist ministers and the government of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reiterated calls on Monday for the resettlement of Palestinians from the Gaza Strip and for the establishment of Israeli settlements in the enclave. So Itamar Ben-Gavir, he's Israel's Minister of National Security and the leader of the Jewish Power Party. He said the onslaught prevents, quote, an opportunity to concentrate on encouraging the migration of the residents of Gaza. We cannot withdraw from any territory we are in the Gaza Strip. Not only do I not rule out Jewish settlements there, I believe it is also an important thing, end quote. And he said this during a meeting of his Jewish power party. There was faction meetings in the Knesset on Monday. And uh, Bezalel Smotrich, and uh, he's the Israeli finance minister, 
And I covered comments, very similar comments that he made a day earlier in the show yesterday. So if this story sounds familiar, um, but he told members of his re- religious Zionism party that the correct solution to the conflict is to, quote, encourage the voluntary migration of Gaza's residents to countries that will agree to take in the refugees, end quote. So you see the language that they're using. Oh, we have to encourage the Palestinians, and they call it voluntary migration. But their encouragement involves destroying all their homes and their infrastructure and starving them to death. So it's not there's, there would be nothing voluntary about it if this happened. He added that Israel will, quote, permanently control the territory of the Gaza Strip, end quote. And he says they will also establish settlements. And he made similar comments a day earlier, calling for the reduction of the population of Palestinians in Gaza, saying he could live with 100 to 2,000 Arabs living there. So uh, Ahmed Tibi, who's an Arab member of the Israeli Knesset, he condemned the rhetoric from Smotrich and Ben Gavir and accused them of inciting genocide. So again, this is a member of the Israeli Knesset. He said, quote, a day will come and these two senior ministers in the Israeli government will stand before an international tribunal for war crimes, end quote. So these guys, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, were once on the fringe of Israeli politics. But now they have significant power and, you know, their ideas are becoming more popular. And their idea, this idea of getting rid of all the Palestinians from Gaza is, you know, we're hearing this from a lot of Israeli officials, not just these guys, these guys, you know, once considered on the fringe. Many Israeli officials and Knesset members, including members of Netanyahu's Likud party and the centrist Yesh Atid party, which is the main opposition party, that's that's Yair Lapid's party, the previous Israeli prime minister, they've all called for other countries to take in Palestinian refugees. There was that op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that the West should take them in, and that was written by a Likud member and a Yeshatid member. So you see, this is across the political spectrum, except for, you know, the Arab, the small minority of uh, Arab politicians like Ahmed Tibi. Um, And Netanyahu said last week that he's looking for other countries to absorb Palestinians from Gaza. You know, this is all making it clear. Their goal is ethnically cleansing Gaza and taking it over permanently. And I think it's clear by the, the strategy that they're employing that they are trying to make it unlivable. Um, All right, so the next one here, New Year in Gaza begins with more Israeli shelling. This article is from Middle East Eye, and it's kind of just a summary of the airstrikes and things that happened across Gaza on Monday the 1st. So the new year began with continued Israeli bombardment flattening homes across Gaza and a flurry of rockets targeting Tel Aviv at midnight. The death toll of Palestinians killed in the enclave since the war began on 7th October approached the 22,000 mark as heavy tank shelling and airstrikes were reported overnight and into Monday morning across the territory. In the southern area of Khan Yunus, airstrikes killed and wounded several people. According to medics in Deir al-Bala in central Gaza, a resident who survived an Israeli airstrike on a school which killed six people on Sunday recalled the moment that the bomb hit. Um, they have quotes from that person saying it's a, it was a school full of children and elderly people and that they were told to move to that area and that they were bombed and killed anyway and this all came as israeli officials had begun so on monday uh the israeli officials had begun the process of withdrawing thousands of troops out of gaza uh they said they're going to remove five brigades which is a lot of troops it's not they don't 
they're not saying how many. We don't know how many Israeli troops are in Gaza, so it's not clear how big of a withdrawal this is. It it sounds big, um, but it's also not clear if they're sending in more troops right away. They're saying basically that they're taking reservists out for rest and to do uh, some training and things like that. But if you remember the story I went over yesterday, the IDF said that this war, this slaughter in Gaza is going to continue through the entire year of 2024. So they have no plans to of, of wrapping up the war. Um, some reports ha- are speculating that this might be Israel, you know, go- transitioning into a new phase of the war that the U.S. has been wanting them to do, like less just relentless airstrikes and more targeted attacks against Hamas officials. But we haven't seen any sort of um, reduction in airstrikes yet. So, uh, you know, it's not really clear exactly what I think it'll become more clear in, in the next few days. And there's also more Israeli airstrikes in Lebanon Four Hezbollah fighters were killed, according to Hezbollah. So that's just another uh, flashpoint. Um, you know, things are just still escalating there. All right, so the next one here, the UK is ready to take direct action against the Houthis. British Defense Minister Grant Shapps has said the UK is willing to take direct action against Yemen Houthis, Yemen's Houthis over attacks on Israel-linked commercial shipping in the Red Sea. So writing in the Telegraph, Shapps pointed to a recent incident where a British warship shot down a Houthi drone. He said the interception was, quote, the first time that our Navy had shot down an aerial target in anger in more than 30 years, end quote. So I guess he's very proud of that fact. Shap said that the British warship demonstrated that, quote, we are willing to take direct action and we won't hesitate to take further action to deter threats to freedom of navigation in the Red Sea, end quote. His comments came after the U.S. sank three Houthi boats killing 10 people that the U.S. military said was attacking work attacking a container ship. And this was a huge escalation in this uh, in what's happening in the Red Sea. You know, this is the first time anybody's died since the Houthis have started uh, these attacks on Israel-linked commercial shipping. You know, this really ramped things up a notch. Ten, ten, of, ten Houthis, Houthi naval personnel killed by the U.S. Um, there were some reports on Monday... I saw on Twitter about the Houthis attacking a U.S. warship, but then the Houthis denied that, and I didn't see any kind of credible reports on that. Uh, But I think it's certainly possible that something like that might happen. And Shapps noted that the U.K. joined the U.S.-led coalition in the Red Sea, known as Operation Prosperity Guardian. And this is an initiative that many countries, including U.S. allies, close U.S.-European allies, are reluctant to participate in, since this was launched to back up what Israel's doing in Gaza, you know, it, I think many of these countries are hesitant to show that they're supporting the Israeli slaughter that's going on, but not the UK. They're, they're not worried about that. Um, and Shaps, this article, this op-ed that he wrote for The Telegraph, it came after the Times, uh, the Sunday Times, the Times of London reported that the UK and possibly another third country were preparing to launch airstrikes against the Houthis. So that's the UK, the US, and possibly another third European country. Um, so something we have to, you know, really hope doesn't happen. If the US starts bombing Yemen, I mean, that's going to really, really escalate things. 
All right, so the next one here, Iranian warship enters the Red Sea amid heightened tensions. So an Iranian naval destroyer, the Albors, has passed through the Bab el-Mandab Strait and entered the Red Sea amid soaring tensions in the water in the waters and this was reported by Iranian media on Monday. The news came after US Navy helicopters killed those those 10 Houthis in the Red Sea and uh, basically Iran's position on this, they've denied claims from the US that they are deeply involved in the attacks on Israel-linked commercial shipping, but they have praised the Houthi efforts as well. Iran's foreign minister was in uh, met with the Houthi spokesman in Tehran on Monday, and according to Iranian media, he hailed the firm stance of Yemen's Ansar Allah, which is the Houthis, in support of the oppressed Palestinian people in the face of the Israeli regime's crimes and aggression. So uh, Iran is saying, you know, that they're they're happy with what the Houthis are doing. And, you know, the Houthis are portrayed as this Iranian proxy that that would never exist if not for Iran. But an important point is that they are a homegrown movement of Zaydi Shias who have lived in the uh, er- that part of Yemen for thousands of years. And they, uh, you know, are known to act independently. They've been fighting a war against the U.S.-backed Saudi coalition since 2015. Um you know, and they've become a pretty formidable fighting force. Uh, all right. So the last one here, Putin vows to ramp up strikes on Ukraine. So Russian President Vladimir Putin vowed on Monday to ramp up attacks on Ukraine in response to the Ukrainian strike on Russia's Belgorod Oblast. Putin said during a New Year's Day visit to a military hospital, quote, they want to intimidate us and create uncertainty within our country. We will intensify strikes. Not a single crime against our civilian population will go unpunished, end quote. So Ukraine Ukraine targeted Belgorod in a missile attack on Saturday, and this was the most significant Ukrainian attack on Russian territory of the war, really the biggest one. And it came a day after Russia launched a big missile and drone barrage across Ukraine that was said to be Russia's largest missile salvo of the war as well. So the governor of Russia's Belgorod Oblast said Monday that the death toll in the Ukrainian attack had risen to 25 civilians. Putin insisted that Russia's strikes in retaliation will only be aimed at military facilities, although Ukrainian officials said that 31 civilians were killed in the Friday Russian missile barrage. Putin said, quote, of course, we can hit public squares in Kiev and in any other Ukrainian city. I understand I'm boiling with rage, but we do we need to hit civilians? No, we are hitting military targets. And that's what we will keep doing, end quote. So Russia launched a pretty big drone barrage across Ukraine on uh, Monday morning. And as it's become clear that Ukrainian forces cannot beat Russian forces on the battlefield and the war fatigue is growing in the West, Ukraine has been stepping up sabotage and other types of attacks inside Russia. So when it comes to us in the U.S. and in the West, our concern is that these Ukrainian attacks inside Russia that Russia views as only being possible thanks to NATO support uh, could really risk provoking a direct war between Russia and NATO. Um Russia said that the Ukrainian missile strike launched in Belgorod was was launched with a Czech-made rocket launcher and that they fired cluster bombs, so using NATO weapons to do that. And also when it comes to the sabotage attacks, we know 
that the CIA helped build up Ukrainian intelligence services since 2014, including funding them to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. There was a big report in the Washington Post about this recently that did not get much attention. Um, you know, so this this is all being enabled by the U.S. and, and its allies, uh, what Ukraine can do inside Russia. All right, so that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Josiah Thayer, tensions in the Red Sea setting the stage for World War III. One from Jeffrey D. Sachs, U.S. foreign policy is a scam built on corruption. One from Bernie Steinberg, for the safety of Jews and Palestinians, stop weaponizing anti-Semitism. One from Stephen Kinzer, Monroe Doctrine just won't die. And one from Peter Van Buren, it's 2024, is America still indispensable? Um, so that is everything for me for today. I guess that wasn't too short of a show. I stretched it out a bit. Um, but you could always help us out by sharing this show, liking, subscribing, wherever you watch on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. I've been having some trouble with Rumble. The videos don't appear when I first schedule them or publish them. I usually have to check back and or people let me know. I'm not really sure what the deal is there. Uh, but also listen on any uh, podcast app if you want to just listen to the audio. Uh, Anyway, I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.